0: Namaskaram. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking about verse 9 of uh, Uludunapadu. What Bhagavan says in this verse is, Iretegal mupadigal uh, endrum ondru patri irupavam. Ab ondru edu endru karutinol kandal karalum ave. Kandavare unmay uh, kandar uh kalangare khan. What that means is the first sentence is uh mupudigal indrum uh andru patri that means dyads and triads exist always holding one thing um that's a very simple. That's a, a literal and very simple, but very simple translation. Um, but there's a lot that needs to be unpacked here to understand the full implication of this. Firstly, um, the terms Bhagavan uses in Tamil for dyads and triads are irategal and mupadigal. Irategal simply means pairs. In this context, it means pairs of opposites, which in Sanskrit are called dvandvas and mupadigal is a tamil form of the sanskrit or the sanskrit term uh, triputi adapted into tamil um because in sanskrit tree means 3 and uh, uh in tamil uh, mu means um is, mean 3 um so it's a tamil adaptation of a sanskrit word um Triads means, uh, this is a term uh, from Indian philosophy, that is, all knowledge of things other than ourselves entail three factors. That is, there has to be something that is known, there has to be a means of knowing it, and there has to be something that is knowing it. that's actually in reverse order I put that because usually they start from the what is known and then the means of knowing and then go back to the knower. But actually, it all starts from the knower. Without a knower, obviously there cannot be anything. There cannot either be a means of knowing or anything that is known. And without a means of knowing, there cannot be any thing known. So the the. Um, um, <coughs> Whatever is known depends for its seeming existence on the means for knowing it. And both the means for knowing it and the uh, thing that is known both depend on the knower. Um, so I will I will elaborate upon this a bit more afterwards, but this is just a basic. So the, these are, to put in simple terms in English, dyads and triads. Dyads means pairs of opposites. Triads means uh, these three factors of objective knowledge. Uh, uh, the main verb, in, so that these two are the subject. Uh, the main verb is Irupavam, which means exist. Uh, endrum means always. Uh, onju means one. It's, a na- it's one as, an, uh, as a, a noun, so it means one or one thing, the one. Um, And patri literally means holding or clinging to. In this context, though it literally means holding, the the sense in which Bhagavan is using it is in the sense of depending. So dyads and triads always exist. uh, Well, they exist, not they don't always exist, obviously. They exist always holding one thing, always depending on one thing. Um, So, as I say, this this needs to be expanded. Firstly, what is meant by the dyads? As I said, it means pairs of opposites. And examples of pairs of opposites are existence and non-existence, life and death, awareness and non-awareness, knowledge and ignorance happiness and unhappiness, good and bad, liberation and bondage, and so on and so forth. Any any pair of opposites. Um, But these are some of the basic pairs of opposites. Um, But what we actually are is obviously beyond all pairs of opposites. That is, for phenomena, we can say it exists, it doesn't exist. There are things that existed in the past in the past, there was um, there was an emperor called Ashoka. There was an empire called the Roman Empire. These existed in the past. They no longer exist. So they went through a stage of existence, and they have come to a stage of non-existence. So like that, this is true of all phenomena. No phenomena exist permanently. Sometimes they exist. Sometimes they don't exist. So according to Bambam, they don't actually exist, even when they seem to exist. But at they, least they seem to exist but they never seem to exist always. It's only at times they seem to exist. And when they don't seem to exist, they're said to be non-existent. Um, what we actually are, our real nature is beyond this pair of opposites because for our real nature is what always exists. So for it, there is no such thing as non-existence. So our existence is not like the existence of other things. Our existence is the existence that is beyond the uh, the this pair of opposites, it is the absolute existence, the ultimate existence. All, that is, our existence is what actually exists. All other things merely seem to exist, in the view of one thing, this one thing Bhagavan is talking about here. What that one thing is, I'll explain in a little while. So that's uh, the dyads. The triads, as I say, it is these these three factors of transitive knowledge or awareness. Um, The technical terms used in Sanskrit are um, the knower is called pramata or nyata. The, um, The means of knowing is called pramana or jnana. And what is known is called pramea or nyea. Um, so the, these are the, these three. Um, in any when we know anything other than ourselves, these three are always involved. Now um, I see a, a PC screen in front of me, and I'm reading some writing on that PC screen. This uh So this PC screen, and we're writing on it, these are objects known by me. So how am I knowing it? In this case, I'm knowing it by seeing. Seeing is the means by which I know it. And I am a knower. Uh, Like that, all knowledge, but some knowledge we know by uh, sensory perception. Some things we know by seeing or by hearing or by uh touching or tasting or smelling that's those are, those are the one uh, one set of means by which we know things but we don't know things only by there are many things that we know which we've never seen or or heard or tasted we come to know by other means we come to know for example by testimony um we we read in the newspaper but there's a war going on in ukraine this is not something that we are witnessing directly, uh, that, that we are seeing directly, unless we watch it on the television, but it, it's something that we, 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 we receive testimony. We read in the, in the newspaper, we believe the newspapers are a reliable source of information. So this is um, knowledge by testimony, and m- most of the knowledge we have uh, for example most of the knowledge we, most of us haven't are not scientists so whatever knowledge we have of science is um what we what we uh, know by by means of testimony we have come we've heard these things we're from reliable sources we we think scientists are generally reliable people and even the scientists most of what they know even about their own science d- d- that is scientists don't test every piece of uh, knowledge which is, um, that they learn when they go to university and when they, when they study scientific journals. They, they take these as reliable sources of information, and so they trust them. And this is how hum- most human knowledge is based on testimony. We, we can't verify everything for ourselves. We take things on testimony. Another major way by which we know things is by inference. We, they're, they're, most of science, for example, is inferred knowledge. That is, uh, um, observations are made, maybe experiments are done. So data is gathered. And then from this data, certain inferences are, are, are drawn. And those inferences become theories and the theories, that, well, they first become hypotheses, which are tested. And if a hypothesis stands up to all the tests, it becomes a theory. And um, the, that theory may last for some time, and after some time, more data comes, and that the, the, the theories of the past are no longer found to be satisfactory for the present data, so the theories get revised. This is how scientific knowledge develops, but it's all mainly based. I mean, apart from the observation, the the the, the inferences that are drawn from the observation are mostly done by. It, it's, it, it's inferred knowledge that is um scientists believe in the big bang for example nobody has actually ever witnessed the big bang from all the data they have gathered they infer this so most uh most not not only scientific knowledge most knowledge we have um is inferred knowledge we go to a supermarket to buy um bread or rice we believe that when we or fruits or vegetables whatever it is we believe that the food we buy in supermarkets is generally a reliable food we don't think we're going to be poisoned by eating um a mango that we bought in the supermarket or that we bought in the ve- um fruit market we we because we so many times we bought fruit in those places before and so many other people have bought fruit, fruit so we take it we 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 infer that this mango is not going to poison us like that most of our knowledge is is based on inference we we can't be sure this could be a poison mango it could be a um it could have uh, dangerous pesticides in it, or it could uh, be a strange mutation. Suddenly, a poisonous mango has been um, produced for some reason. So, we can never. Most of the knowledge we have, we can't be sure of, but we we infer. And generally, our inferences, if we, we have, if we base it on on reliable information, our inferences are generally correct. Um, some uh, knowledge we. Uh, we can infer by um, um like a lot of the knowledge, a lot of our inferences are we can't be absolutely sure. That is, we having observed many times, we come to the conclusion, oh, things generally are like this, so it's likely to continue being like this that every morning the sun has risen in the east so we believe it's going to arise in the east every morning um because it, that's a reasonable inference to make but we can't we can never be absolutely sure something may happen and it may not rise tomorrow for some reason um but there's other type of knowledge that we can infer uh what is called deductively That is, from from certain information, if we uh, logically consider that information, for example, a a classic example of deductive inference, is all men are mortal. Uh, Socrates was a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. If the two premises are true, then the, the inference that you draw must be true. If it is true that all men are mortal, and if it is true that Socrates was a man, then Socrates must be mortal. That, that's that's deductive uh, inference. That those inferences we're sure of. So, like this, there's so many ways in which we um, we know things by um, religious knowledge. For example, we may believe in um, we may believe in God. We may believe God created the world in seven days if we believe the Bible, or we may whatever be our religion we 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 take most religious knowledge is belief based on testimony um so whatever knowledge we have about anything there's some means by which we know it so that means is called the pramana so there's something that is known there's a means of knowing it but most important of all there is a knower and the knower is ego, our self as ego is the other no- knower. So um, when Bhagavan says dyads and triads always exist holding one thing, that one thing we have to, we have to infer, because Bhagavan doesn't say it explicitly here, we have to infer that one thing is ego, because ego is the knower. There cannot be any means of knowing anything or Anything known without a knower. So the knower is the basis of these of the of the other two members of this triputi. Likewise, all dyads, existence, non-existence, life, death, awareness, non-awareness, knowledge, ignorance, all these things are known by whom? Only by ego. So they are these things are all objects of knowledge. So they also depend upon ego. So the, the correct way of understanding this sentence is that Bhagavan is saying all pairs of opposites and all these factors of objective knowledge, all objective knowledge in other words, exist depending on ego. Why? Because it all exists only in the view of the ego. In many translations, you will see it will be put uh, dyads and triads always exist holding um, or depending on one capital O, uh, capital T, one thing, or the one with a capital O, implying that they all depend upon our real nature. That is how many people have interpreted this verse. But Bhagavan himself explained. And if we if we if we understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly, it's obvious that what Bhagavan is talking about here when he says one thing is ego, because um, this is actually the first. Well, no, it's not the first. In in earlier verses, for example, in um, in verse four, Bhagavan made it clear. He said, "If uh, if." One's self is a form, the world and God will be likewise. If one's self is not a form, who can see their forms and how? What this implies is that only when we experience ourself as a form do we experience other forms, do we experience the world and God as forms? If we don't experience ourself as a form, we don't experience any forms at all. So from this what what is it that identifies itself as a form? It's only ego. So, there, Bhagavan is already beginning to imply, but everything depends on ego. In the next verse, he says, the body is a form of five sheaves. Therefore, all five are included in the, uh, t- in the term body. Um, without a body, has anyone seen a world? Obviously not. We we never ex- even in dream when we when we see a dream world. We we see ourselves as if we were a person within that dream world. So it's only through the five senses of a dream body that we take to be ourselves. But we know the dream world. So without a body, we've never seen a world. Whenever we uh, experience a world, we experience ourselves as a body within that world. So again, this indirectly is implying only when we rise as ego, because it's only as ego that we experience ourselves as a body. Then in the next verse, verse seven, he says um, uh sorry, verse six he says, but um but the world is nothing but the five kinds of sense knowledge, sense sense impression. Uh, in other words, sights, sounds. Tactile sensations, tastes, and smells. If you remove these five, where is there any such thing as the world? What we know as the world is only these five kinds of sense impressions. Since the one mind knows the world by way of the five sense organs, is there a world apart from the mind? Again, he's clearly implying the world depends upon the uh, the mind, but sees the world. And again, in verse seven, he says. Though the world, he uses the word there, he uses the word Aribu, which means awareness, but he's using it there in the sense of mind or ego, because mind or ego is the awareness that knows the world. So he says... um, uh, so I, I will substitute the word uh, awareness there for ego, because that's what he's in, uh, implying. Though the, the world and ego rise and subside simultaneously, it is only by ego that the world shines. Why is that? Because the world seems to exist only in the view of ego. And then he goes on to say that um. That which exists without rising or without appearing or disappearing, in other words, without rising or subsiding, at the base for the appearing and disappearing of the world and ego, that is the reality. That's our real nature, in other words. So he's already been implying that everything depends on ego, if we've understood the earlier verses correctly. this verse is first in another respect, but I'll deal with that a little later. So, um, and then he goes on in later verses. For example, in um, in verse 14, he says, if the first person exists, second and third persons will exist. What does he mean by first person? He means ego, the subject. Well, that which knows everything else. Second and third persons are all the objects. So if the, if the first person exists, second and third persons will exist. In other words, if the subject exists, the, the objects will also exist. So because the objects exist only in the view of the subject. and the, so the first person is ego, second and third persons are all objects of phenomena. If oneself investigating the reality of the first person, the the first person ceases to exist. That implies if by oneself investigating the reality of oneself, the first person, the first person, namely ego, ceases to exist, second and third persons coming to an end, the nature that shines as one alone uh, is oneself, the state of oneself or the real nature of oneself. Um, uh, so there, he's, he clearly implies second and third person. in other words, all objects or phenomena, depend on the first person. It's only in the, when the first person exists that the second and third person seem to exist. If uh, we investigate the first person, the first person will thereby cease to exist, and second and third persons will also cease to exist. So throughout Bhagavan is saying the same thing again and again. He's constantly pointing to to ego as the root of everything. And he says it most explicitly in verse 26. He says, uh, If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego... Uh, if ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. That is, when we see this, this world, when we see all these phenomena, what are we seeing as phenomena? We're just seeing ourselves. So, the ego is seeing itself as, as the dream, as all the multiplicity of phenomena. So uh, all these are wholly dependent on ego. Because if ego doesn't exist, nothing else exists. If ego exists, everything else seems to exist. And he concludes that verse twenty-six by saying, "Therefore, if uh, um, uh, therefore investigating what it is—that means investigating what ego is—is is giving up everything. Why is that? Because if we investigate ego, ego will cease to exist, as he says, for example, in verse fourteen. If um, if uh, if oneself investigating the reality of the first person, the first person ceases to exist. So the nature of the ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to things other than itself. But if it attends to itself, it doesn't find any such thing as ego. So it subsides and dissolves back into its source, into its underlying reality, which is pure awareness, which is our real nature. So... So as I say, he ends verse twenty-six by saying, "Therefore, investigating what it is is giving up everything. Because if we investigate ego, we thereby give up ego, and when we give up ego, we give up everything else. Because everything else depends. If ego doesn't exist, nothing else exists. Because everything it depends um, for its semi-existence on the semi-existence of ourself as ego. So if we understand but the main theme, this is one of the main themes that is running throughout Uludunapadu. Everything depends for its semi existence upon ego. So uh, we we have to understand when Bhagavan says dyads and triads exist always holding or depending on one thing. What is that one thing? He's, Bhagavan is, isn't talking about our real nature. Our, our real nature is the ultimate basis, but what he's talking about here. They depend upon ego. If ego comes into existence, all the diads and triads come into existence. If ego doesn't exist, diads and triads do not exist. This we can easily infer from verse 26 and from so many other verses. So this is what Bhagavan means here. So as I say, most translations are misleading by capitalizing the one, by making it sound like it's some one with a capital O. No, it's not. It's just ego So, the Bhagavan is referring to here. But clue, a further clue is given in the next sentence, because in the next sentence he says, if one sees within the mind what that one thing is, they will slip off. They mean the diads and triads. Why will they slip off? Just because you see within the mind what that one thing is? Because that one thing is ego. If you see within the mind what that ego is, you find there's no such thing as ego at all. So since ego ceases to exist, the dyads and triads cease to exist. This is what we have to infer. This is what Bhagavan made clear in verse 14, um, that if oneself investigating the truth of oneself, sorry, if, one, if investigating the truth of the first person, the first person ceases to exist, second and third persons will also cease to exist. So it's exactly the same thing the Bhagavan is saying so this is what I said this second sentence this is the first time in ulutunapdu Bhagavan is uh, is is introducing this idea but by investigating ego, ego will cease to exist and everything else will cease to exist. this is something that he he emphasizes in so many ways in so many in so many other verses for example in verse, Well, I've already pointed out the example in verse 14. In verse 25, uh, that's a verse in which Bhagavan refers to ego as a formless phantom or formless evil spirit. He says, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. In other words, what he implies in both sentences is: but the very nature of ego is to be constantly grasping form. But instead of grasping form, if, if, if instead of grasping form, if ego grasps itself, what happens? That is what he says in the next sentence: otum autumpidicum." If sought, it takes flight. What that means is, if ego investigates itself to see who am I. Ego, as ego, will subside and dissolve back into its source, and what will remain is the underlying reality, uh, namely um, the pure awareness that we actually are. So, this is one of the fundamental principles of Bhagavan's teaching that if we investigate ego, ego will cease to exist. And when ego ceases to exist, everything else will cease to exist. That is what he implies here. And this, incidentally, is one of the one of the unique aspects of Bhagavan's teachings. I don't think in any spiritual text or any spiritual teaching has previously has been given so clearly that the nature of ego. As Bhagavan says in verse 25, as he implies in verse 25, the nature of the ego is to rise, stand and flourish by attending to forms. Since ego is a formless phantom, attending to form means attending to things other than itself. So so long as ego is attending to things other than itself, it will rise and flourish and, and do very well for itself. But if instead of attending to other things, if it attends to itself, It takes flight, it will subside and disappear. As far as I'm aware, in um, in no scripture before Bhagavan has it been said so clearly that this is the nature of ego. And if we think about it, this is very logical because Ego is the false, as Bhagavan said, ego is the false awareness, I am this body. Whenever we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, that means we've risen as ego and we are consequently aware of other things. So, the two defining characteristics of ego is that as ego, we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body and we are consequently aware of things other than ourselves. So it is only when we're aware of things other than ourselves. But even the body is something other than ourselves. But what we now take to be ourselves is actually something other than ourselves. So it's only when we're attending to things other than ourselves, including this body and mind and everything, do we seem to be ego? But if instead of attending to other things, if we attend to ourselves, Does any such thing as ego actually exist? No, it doesn't actually exist. It merely seems to exist. It it seems to exist because we don't look at it carefully. It is like if if we see something lying on the ground in the dim light of dusk, we may mistake it to be a snake. So long as we don't look at it carefully, we will continue to be afraid of it because it looks like a snake. Though it's not moving, it could at any moment start moving. It could suddenly um, move towards us and bite us. So we're afraid to go too close. But uh, if Bhagavan is accompanying us, Bhagavan will assure us, no, it is not a snake. It's only a rope. And if we're still not convinced, he'll say, I mean, though we may trust in Bhagavan's words, still there'll be a lingering fear there because it looks very much like a snake. So to, to To convince us, Bhagavan will say, look at it very carefully. If we look at, if we have, if we trust Bhagavan's words enough and have the courage to look at it carefully, what do we see? Oh, it's not a snake, it's only a rope. Likewise, with ego, we seem to be ego because we haven't looked at ourselves closely enough. If we look at ourselves closely enough, we will see that what we actually are. Pure awareness, not this ego at all. So ego seems to be seems to exist. We seem to be ego only so long as we do not attend to ourselves. That's why Bhagavan often said. But the the reason ego seems to exist is because of avichara or pramada. Pramada is another term for avichara. Avichara means non-investigation. Pramada means negligence in the sense of, in this context, it means self negligence because we haven't looked at ourselves closely enough. That's what avichara means. Avichara is the opposite of vichara. Vichara is to attend to ourselves carefully. Avichara is to fail to attend to ourselves carefully enough. So we seem to be ego only because we are not looking at ourselves. We're looking elsewhere. If we look at ourselves to see what we actually are, we will see but we are pure awareness, and therefore, we have never been ego. No such thing as ego has ever existed. And since everything else depends for its semi existence upon the semi existence of ourself as ego, as soon as we see ourself as pure awareness, everything else will cease to exist. As he says here, if one sees within the mind what that one thing, namely ego, is, dyads and triads will slip off. So in this verse, Bhagavan is giving the very core principles of his teachings, firstly, but all other things. And when we think of it, dyads and triads covers everything because, I I mean, we see so many pairs of opposites in the world around us. Um, So the, the world is full of pairs of opposites and everything that we know uh, fits it, is an element of the that is all objects of knowledge are, um, are what are called uh, Pramaya or the means by which we know whatever objects of knowledge we know, they are called Pramana. And both the Pramaya and the Pramana exist only in this view of ourself as Pramata. Pramata is ego, the knower or subject. So, um what Bhagavan says here is very, very radical because he's basically saying that everything, I mean he's saying what he says in verse 26, but in uh you know in a, in in different words that all these dyads and triads that make up all our experience all depend only upon ego. And if we look within ourselves to see what is this ego, we look within the mind to see what is this ego that in mind. Here he's using the term mind as a the, the, the totality of all thoughts. He sometimes uses the term mind to mean the totality of all thoughts. So all the dyads and triads are nothing but thoughts. As Bhagavan said, all phenomena are thoughts. The whole world is nothing but thoughts. So among all the thoughts, if we look within these thoughts to see what is the one thing. That one thing is the Noah. So if we look within our mind to see who is the knower of all this, the Noah will cease to exist, and all these other things will cease to exist along with it. That's what he means by uh, "karilum Abe. Abay means they, referring to dyads and triads. Karilum means slip off. It will, in other words, it will cease to exist. Is what it implies. And then in the last two sentences, what he says in the next sentence, he says, "Kanda bare unme kanda." That literally means uh, only those who have seen have seen the reality. So, what does he mean by that? What he implies is only those who have seen the non-existence of ego are those who have seen the reality. That is only when we only when we look at the snake carefully enough and see that it's actually a rope, we thereby see the non existence of the snake, and thereby we are seeing the reality, the underlying reality, which is just a rope. Um, So, if we we can be said to have seen the reality only when we have seen the non existence of ego. So. Who is it who sees the reality? It obviously cannot be ego because we have to see the non-reality of ego. So who sees the reality? The reality alone knows the reality because the reality, the reality of ourselves, the reality of all things, is pure awareness. What we actually are, that is the reality. So when we see ourselves as we actually are, we cease to be ego and remain as we actually are. So what knows pure awareness is only pure awareness. As Bhagavan often used to say, jnana me jnani. That is, jnana alone is the jnani. Jnana in this context means pure awareness. Jnani means not what knows pure awareness. So what is it that knows pure awareness? Only pure awareness knows pure awareness. So if we look within to see what we actually are, we will see that we are we are just pure awareness. And by seeing ourselves as pure awareness, we we. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Undia, tanai iratalei tanai aridlam, knowing, sorry, being oneself alone is knowing us uh, oneself. Oneself here means pure awareness. So being pure awareness is alone knowing pure awareness. Ego can never know pure awareness because, firstly, because pure awareness cannot be an object of knowledge. If pure awareness, only pure awareness can know pure awareness. And secondly, Ego is the false awareness I am this body. So long as we are aware of ourselves as I in this body, we are not aware of ourselves as pure awareness. Um, so only when we've seen, by looking within and seeing the non-existence of ego and therefore the non-existence of everything else, have we truly seen what is real, namely ourself, our own being, uh, which is pure awareness. Um, and then he says, kalangare, they will not be confused. That implies they um, uh, they, they, they will not be confused by ever seeing anything, up, anything other than themselves. That is, all these dyads and triads are a mere appearance. They're not at all real. They seem to exist only when we look away from ourselves. If we see ourselves as we actually are, We will never again see all these other things, so we will never be confused. And then he says, uh, Khan, see. Now, he's telling us, see, see, that implies, see what you act. It can, we can take it to mean, see the truth of all that is said here. Um, But it also implies, see what you actually, see the, look within the mind to see the, um, to see who is the seer, to see that one thing. When one sees within the mind what that one thing is, they will slip off. So he's saying, see, see within the mind what that one thing is. Um, oh, one other thing I didn't say when I was talking about the first sentence. In the Kali Vemba version, Bhagavan expanded this first sentence by adding just one word before the, um, the dyads and triads, iritegal mupadigal. The one word he... Uh, he added is vinmei. Vinmei, uh Vin means space or uh, or 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 sky. Um uh so vinmei means literally it means skyness. Um so diads and triads skyness exist always holding one thing. So what does he mean by skyness? It, it, this is a very, um, a, a, a very nice way of expressing but the but, but dyads and triads are unreal like the blueness of the sky. That is what he implies by this. In one word, he, he gives this clue. Skyness means blueness. The blueness of the sky is a mere appearance. The sky isn't actually blue. When, when, when the sun sets, the sky no longer looks blue. It looks black. Why, why does it look blue in the daytime and black at nighttime? What, what is the real color of the sky? It looks blue in the daytime because of the, the way the light the, of the sun is refracted through the uh, Earth's atmosphere. It gives the appearance of uh, blueness. But actually, the sky is not blue at all. It's that, That's a mere appearance. So what Bhagavan implies by this word, me." is that the dyads and triads are as unreal as the blueness of the sky. They're a mere appearance. They they it's they don't actually exist. They merely seem to exist. And in whose view do they seem to exist? Only in the view of ego. So what do they depend upon for their semi-existence? Only upon ego. So the, the, this, uh, this illusory appearance of dyads and triads depends upon the one who sees this illusory appearance, who sees the illusory appearance, only ego. That is this this illusory appearance of dyads and triads does not exist in the view of our real nature. Our real nature is pure awareness. Pure awareness doesn't know anything other than itself. So dyads and triads exist only in the view of ego. That is why. We're not aware of any diads or triads. We're not aware of anything other than ourselves in sleep. In sleep, all we know is I am. We don't know anything else whatsoever. Why? Because in in sleep, we don't rise as ego. Therefore, nothing else seems to exist. When we rise as ego in waking and dream, diads and triads seem to exist. That is, our experience of waking and dream is saturated with dyads and triads the whole thing is a, is a is a fabric is is a um is, is all all exists within this framework of dyads and triads remove the dyads and triads and there's no world there's not even a seer of the world because the ego upon which the dyads and triads depend is itself one of the three elements of that triad so everything depends upon ego like the like all the other members of the dyads and Triads, ego is as unreal as the blueness of the sky. It doesn't actually exist at all. Um. So this is, this is a very very important verse, and just as a um, just uh, to get uh, to provide some continuity with what goes on after this. From verse ten onwards, ten, eleven, twelve, and thirteen, Bhagavan is talking about one of the most basic of the dyads, That is the dyad of knowledge and ignorance. Knowledge and ignorance. Um. This is one because, about that is the 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 triads. These are um. These are all. T- that is they are um. They are. A triad is it, it's the elements of of knowledge that is the knower, the knowing, the, or the means of knowing, and the known. So, uh, uh, so uh, the the dyad of knowledge and ignorance is a very very basic dyad, So, Bhagavan takes that up for analysis in the next four verses. So, those we'll be talking about in in uh, in uh, January, February, March, and April. Um, so, so I just wanted to say. So this is this this verse is a very important introduction to these um, to these four very important verses that we're going to be talking about for the next four months. Uh, Om namo bhagavate Sri Ramanaya. Thank you, Michael. Um,
1: There's a question from Lean. If I can maybe get an answer to my question. If the ego is in both waking and dreaming state, why do we feel we move from a peaceful state to a kind of anxious state upon waking up in the morning?
0: Dream is not peaceful. In dream we have so many anxieties. That that is ego is there only in waking and dream. Now, what is the nature of waking and dream? In both waking and dream, we experience ourselves as a body, and we consequently experience other things. Because we experience ourselves as a body, anxiety is naturally there. In sleep, sorry, in dream, we we often in very anxious situations. We often find ourselves to be in danger of one sort or another. We may be running away from a monster, or we may be. Uh, on the edge of a precipice, or something—all all sorts of dangers we we face in dreams. So we often experience anxiety, fear, and we also see objects of desire. So, so waking in dream are I, actually, according to Bhagavan, what we take to be—we always take our present state to be waking, though. We, but. Even when we're at night, when we're dreaming, in our, that when our sleep is interrupted by dreams, in those dreams, we seem to be awake. So any our current dream always seems to us to be waking. Other dreams seem to be dreams, but actually they're all just dreams. If you want to be free of anxiety, don't rise as ego. In sleep, when we don't rise as ego, then we are free of anxiety. The only problem with sleep is, from the perspective of ego, sleep seems to be a temporary state. It's a state that we were in, but we've now come out of. So, what we seek to attain is the eternal sleep, the real sleep, the sleep of pure awareness. That is the, the sleep is a, a state of mano layer, a temporary dissolution of mind. Uh, we're not looking for a temporary solution. We want a permanent solution. The permanent solution is called Manonasa, destruction or annihilation of mind. That is achieved only by investigating who am I, thereby seeing the non thereby seeing what we actually are, namely pure awareness. We cease to, uh, we cease to mistake ourselves to be this body, and therefore ego is annihilated.
1: So in the question, um, if ego is there in dream state also, and ego is there in the waking state also, why do we feel like we're moving from a peaceful state to a kind of anxious state upon
0: waking up? But yes, but, but that implies that sleep, the dream is a peaceful state. But sleep, a dream is, is no more peaceful than our present state. Even in our present state, sometimes we seem to be in a relatively peaceful conditions. Likewise, in dreams, some dreams are relatively peaceful, but we never know. The next moment, some, uh, some problem may arise. So, waking and dream are both the same. That is, the degree of anxiety that we experience in the waking state is no greater than the degree of anxiety we experience in. Uh, dream state we are free of anxiety only when we are free of ego as for example in sleep in deep sleep deep sleep deep sleep yes exactly
1: yes thank you so much okay right thank
0: right. you right
1: thank you. thank you lynn okay so um robert boyer is asking besides awareness does anything else really really exist
0: No. (laughs) Simple. (laughs) Everything else seems to exist in the view of ego. Ego is a form of awareness, but it's not the pure awareness. Ego is the adjunct mixed awareness that is our real nature, what we actually are is pure awareness. Pure awareness is aware of itself as I am. That is, pure awareness is our being. So our being is I am. So as as pure awareness, we're always aware I am, but we're never aware of anything other than ourselves. That's why it's called pure awareness. Um, We have to be a little bit careful with this term pure awareness because in different systems of philosophy, when they talk of pure awareness, they imply different things. For example, in Sankhya philosophy, they say Purusha is pure awareness. But what they mean by pure awareness in Sankhya is mere awareness. That is, Purusha is nothing but awareness, but it's aware of all the of Prakriti. Prakriti appears only in the view of Purusha. Um, that, that's a dualistic system of philosophy. But in Advaita, when we talk about pure awareness, Sudha Chaitanya, It means awareness that is not aware of anything other than itself. You will find, if you listen to lectures on Vedanta, you will find often the, because the people who, the lecturers, they lack practical experience, they will sometimes say as if pure awareness is seeing all this. They say it's Sakshi Chaitanya, the witness consciousness. And that witness consciousness is pure awareness and it's knowing all this. They haven't understood what the, correct implication of the term pure awareness. Pure awareness means awareness that is pure. It it has no defilement. So there are no objects of awareness in pure awareness. So our real nature is pure awareness. That is awareness that is not aware of anything other than itself. Why is it not aware of anything other than itself? Because it's real awareness and there is nothing other than that. So that is the pure awareness, which is our real nature alone is what actually exists. This is what Bhagavan implies, for example, in the in the first sentence of the seventh paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says, Yatata uladu Andre. What actually exists is only atma Atmasurupa atma means the real nature of ourself. What is the real nature of ourself? It is pure awareness. And he says the same thing in verse 13 of Uludunapdu, which we'll be talking about after a few months. He begins verse 13 of Uludunapdu by saying, Jnana Mam Tane Mei. That means oneself who is Jnana alone is real. Jnana there means pure awareness. So our self is pure awareness alone is real. Then in the very next sentence, he says, awareness that is Nana Vam Jnana. Knowledge or awareness of multiplicity is ignorance. So, so long as we are aware of multiplicity, that is ignorance. And why? Because who is aware of multiplicity? It's only ego. It's only in the view of ego that multiplicity seems to exist. So, in the view of pure awareness, there is nothing other than pure awareness. That alone is what is real. We can understand this if we consider our experience. What is the one thing that we experience always? It's our own being. I am. All other things appear and disappear. Even our semi-existence as ego. As ego, we always identify ourselves as a person. I am Robert, or I am Kumar, or I am Michael, I am whoever. That is ego that is aware of itself as such. But in sleep... We're aware of ourselves without being aware of ourselves as I am Robert, or I am Kumar, or I am Michael, or I am anyone. We are aware of ourselves as just I am, so that in in sleep, we're not aware of anything other than ourselves. So, sleep is the state of pure awareness. That same pure awareness that exists in sleep exists even now, but it is obscured by our seeming awareness of other things. So the mere awareness I am is pure awareness. That awareness I am mixed and conflated with adjuncts is ego. Is that a clear answer?
1: Robert Boyer, could you um, respond to Michael, please? And also, there is a follow-up comment you made. You can uh, elaborate on that because it's not clear to me. You said, what about the numbers one, two, three? You can unmute, thank you.
2: I hope you can hear me. Yes, yes. I asked and you answered the question, is there anything else that's really, really existent besides awareness? Yes. And you you, you said no. But I still have this guttural feeling that the numbers like one, two, and three really, really exist. And I, I wish you could fix that in me. Okay. Do they
0: exist in your sleep? Uh, definitely. Yes? Definitely. How? Have you ever been aware of more than one thing in sleep? Just
2: just awareness.
0: Just but awareness.
2: Whenever, whenever I'm aware, I keep thinking one, two, three, dot, dot, dot.
0: Only in waking and dream you can think one two three dot dot dot. In sleep you cannot <laughs> think one two three dot dot dot. Numbers are just ideas. Now, but now I, you, but we see so many objects. I mean, we can count the objects in front of us, but all those are just thoughts. I
2: can, I, I can be accused. I'm afraid of being a Platonist. Right. Because I think of the numbers as being eternal and real.
0: Right. <laughs> they are as real as the mind but knows them. Numbers are objects of knowledge. The objects of knowledge without an intellect to, 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 to enumerate the numbers there are no so the intellect is the means by which you know the numbers. So you are the knower. Your intellect is the instrument by which you know these numbers, and you know about the relationships of numbers, and you can study mathematics. And um, it's uh, they, they people spend a whole lifetime studying mathematics, but all they're studying are objects of knowledge. If a mathematician would investigate themselves to see who am I, that the knower of the numbers, namely ego, would dissolve back into its source and all numbers would dissolve along with it. Numbers are just phenomena. They have no existence independent of ego. Thank you. That is why this, pa- this this philosophy is called Advaita. Advaita means no two ness. In one of the Upanishads, <sighs> it is said that the nature of Brahman is Ekam Eva Advaitiam. That means one only without a second. That is the significance of Advaita. There is no second thing. Because since pure awareness alone exists, there cannot be n- nothing other than that exists. Everything else exists only in the view of self as ego. That's why we don't, e- we, we, we don't experience any numbers in sleep. All we experience in sleep, in, de- in deep sleep, in dreamless sleep, is our own being, I am. Our own being is one only without a second. Now so many other things seem to exist, but all these other things that seem to exist, in whose view do they seem to exist? Only in the view of ego. So all these other things, including all numbers, depend for their semi-existence upon the semi-existence of ourself as ego. And even this (coughs) ego is not a real existence because it appears and disappears. So our ego derives it, depends for its semi existence upon the real existence of ourself. So what actually exists is only ourself and nothing else. There is no second thing. Thank you, Michael. I I want Robert, I want to hear from Robert. Are you satisfied or not?
2: (laughs) My, My only response is that I think that the numbers are eternally present to any consciousness or, or awareness that I can imagine.
0: Yeah, because any consciousness or awareness that you can imagine is still a, a, a men- it's a mental fabrication. Imagination means mental fabrication. We, because we are thinking, numbers are just concepts.
2: But let me put it a silly way. Yeah, right. There's no getting away from numbers.
0: I get away from numbers every night when I go to sleep. I'm free of all numbers.
2: <laughs> I, and if, I if for, you
0: don't get away from numbers, there's something very wrong with your sleep.
2: Well, I'm afraid that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I think You're, I read too much Plato. Yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, look with stop, okay let, leave Plato aside. let uh, we have no problem with playing Plato. Who is it who read Plato? Look within yourself to find the one who knows Plato, the one who's got these ideas about numbers. If you know the truth of the Noah, you will know the truth of everything else. When you know the truth of the Noah, all the uh, everything known will cease to exist. That's what Bhagavan is teaching us in this verse. So, numbers are objects of knowledge. Those objects of knowledge depend upon their seeming existence, upon some means of knowing them. And the means of knowing depends upon a knower. You are the knower. You are the one. Now you are seeing yourself as many, but what is real is only yourself, the one.
2: Well, I think it may have been Kronecker, the mathematician, who said that God created the integers and, and created everything else in mathematics. And that's just another silliness. I I just can't seem to get away from the presence of the numbers in addition to whatever dim sense of the the one awareness that I have been able to get to.
0: Do Do you... Are you do you recognize the fact that you were aware in your sleep? You were aware of your existence in your sleep? I, I think so. Right. Okay. That is, we we can if we consider it carefully, we are clearly aware of having been in a state in which we were not aware of anything so we we can only be aware of having been in that state if we were aware of being in that state when we were in that state of course we didn't think of it as a state where i don't know anything we, all we know is our own being in sleep so the more we go deep in this practice of self investigation the clearer it will become to us that but the reality of our own being, so it will become more and more clear to us though we can at uh, first we can understand it by conceptual analysis by thinking carefully about it we can understand, but we continue to be aware it, it, uh, we don't cease to be aware of our own being even in sleep, but in order to put that that dim knowledge that we have to become a clear knowledge we have to look within ourselves. The more we attend to our own being, the more we will recognize that our being is, firstly, it is the basis of all other things. And secondly, it is distinct from all other things. Our being does not depend upon anything else. All other things depend upon our being, but we, our being does not depend upon anything else. And our being is awareness, so that our being... Awareness that that chit alone is what remains in sleep, and that is one without a second. The second things, all other things, appear only when we rise as ego, and we rise as ego only in waking and dream. So it's a matter. All these things become more and more clear to us to the extent to which we look within. Otherwise, if we, are, if we are trying to understand these things with the outward-looking mind, it will still remain vague. Yes, I sort of get it. It's sort of vaguely I understand it, but it, you can't understand it clearly. You can understand it clearly only to the extent to which you follow this practice that Bhagavan taught us of looking within more and more and more and thereby separating our existence from the semi-existence of all other things. Numbers seem to exist. Do they actually exist? The only thing whose existence we can absolutely be sure of is our own existence. Because all other things seem to exist only in the view of ourself as ego, so they depend upon ego for their semi-existence. Whereas our existence We exist independent of ego, because whether ego appears or not, we always exist. Ego appears in waking and dream, disappears in sleep. We exist in all three states. So it's only in the view of ego that all multiplicity seems to exist. Numbers and so on seem to exist. Yeah. Even the God who um, someone said created the integers, even that God seems to exist as an external being, creator of everything, only when we rise as ego. So the ultimate creator, the creator even of the seemingly other God, is only ego. When we don't rise as ego, God remains as he actually is, namely as our own being. That is the real God.
2: Okay. Well, I'm sure you're right. and but However, I'm just accepting that because as you were talking about people accepting the, the work of scientists and newspapers, I, I trust you, but I don't
0: see it. Right. <laughs> that is what, but Bhagwan doesn't, doesn't ask us to believe him. Bhagwan often no. used to say, do not believe what you do not know. Right, so He expects us to make it our own knowledge So how can we make it our own knowledge? That is, whether numbers exist or not They depend upon ourselves as the knower of them So let us investigate imbe- We cannot know the truth of what is known Without knowing the truth of the knower So let us first investigate the knower the And then after we know the truth of the knower if there's anything else to know we can investigate that then so let us first focus on turning our attention within to know who am i the one who knows all these numbers the one to whom all these numbers appear
1: there is a quote from uh, in 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 atma sakshatkara Prahanab where lord shiva tells kuha it is beyond the ken of logicians
0: yes yes it, it had uh, logic is very is a very useful tool but logic is all about connections it's all about cause and effect and so on but the logic is a tool of ego it, right. logic is, is relevant only when we rise as ego in the in sleep we need no logic because you don't need any logic to know i am right so the truth is beyond all logic beyond all con- mental conceptions beyond all numbers beyond everything you just your awareness good thank
1: you michael and thank you robert um so the next question is from Bruce. Um, Bruce, could you, because your question is not clear to me, could you go ahead and uh, ask it yourself?
3: The, the fundamental problem of ego uh, identification, I think what I'm trying to, the question I'm trying to say is the identification with ego is like looking at a mirror reflection and saying, that's real okay and when one looks at a reflection that and thinks that reflection is real it justifies all other reflections that that follow suit and so i guess uh i was trying to indicate that verse 22 of Uludu narpatus seems to be very pertinent in answering the points of, uh, of verse 9, and if you have any comments on that, that would be really helpful.
0: Uh, yes, that is true. Verse 22 is a very, very important verse. What Bhagavan says in verse 22 is, except by turning the mind back within, and thereby completely immersing it in God, who shines within that mind, giving light to the mind, how to fathom God by the mind, consider so what does Bhagavan mean by this? That is, God is that which is shining in the mind, giving light to the mind. That means God is that pure awareness, I am, but shines within the mind, giving the mind the light of awareness by which it knows everything else. The mind knows other things, not by pure awareness, but only by the mind is a reflected awareness or a, a semblance of awareness a likeness of awareness it's not the original awareness the original awareness is what Bhagavan refers to here as pati pati means God or the Lord that is our own real nature that is what we actually are so that's what shines in our mind as I am as our own being giving light to the mind enabling the mind to know all other things so and I think in the Kalivember version, he uh, he adds one word here, which is very important. That is the word he he adds in the Kalivember. But he adds a relative clause in the Kalivember version: "Eveum carum, which sees everything." So, except by turning the, the mind which sees everything back within, and thereby completely immersing it in God, um. Uh, how to see god by the mind. So the um the uh in in this Kali Bamba version he, he adds he points out the mind is what knows everything else so all other things seem to exist only in the view of the mind. Um and b- b- how the mind is able to know all other things only b- by the light, but it borrows from the Lord who shines within the mind. The Lord who shines within the mind is our own being, that pure awareness I am. That lends light to the mind, enabling the mind to know all other things. Um, so the only way to to know God who is the one who shines within the mind is to turn the mind back within and thereby to immerse it in god in other words because when we turn the mind back within <coughs> mind here means ego when, the, when ego turns within to see itself it thereby subsides and dissolves back into its source which is the god referred to here so yes this verse is very this is a very very important verse verse 22 um there was something you said, Bruce, when you started, and I wanted to comment on it. I'm just trying to remember what it was. Um, the error oh, yes, of I, ego. I, I, I know what you said. You said, <laughs> when we identify with ego, Yeah. who is it who identifies exactly.
3: with ego? Exactly. Exactly. The error of ego.
0: Yeah. That is, ego is what identifies itself with the person. We don't, ego is the false identity. It's not that there's some other eye that is identifying with ego. Ego is that which identifies with the phenomena. So ego, as for example, in verse 24, Bhagavan explains what is ego. It's not the body, the body consisting of five sheaths, because the body consisting of five sheaths is jada and is, is not aware of anything. And it's not satchit, because satchit doesn't rise. In between this body and satchit, one thing rises as the extent of a body. That w- the one thing I rises as the extent of a body. That one thing I is ego. That so ego is not what is not something with which we identify. We seem to be ego when we identify ourselves with a body. So we, we shouldn't we we shouldn't think in terms of identifying ourselves with ego. When we identify ourselves with the body, we thereby seem to be ego. Is that clarification clear?
3: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's subtle. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, <laughs> thanks.
0: Because if we identify with ego, then who is it who's identifying with ego? We've got another eye behind that ego who's identifying. So that, that just, we, we shouldn't ideas. get into confusion. We keep things simple. There's the body consisting of five sheaves, which is not I, because it's Jada and it's therefore not aware of itself as I. There's the reality, Satchit, which is what we actually are. In between, that's something that is neither, the, it's not the body because it's aware of itself as I. And it's not satchit, because satchit doesn't rise, but this rises. So it's neither satchit nor is it the body, but it borrows the, it, 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 Bhagavan says it's in between. In between has two, two implications there. Firstly, ego is the link between our real nature and all this appearance. This, this body and all other phenomena. Um, secondly, when we talk about in-between, consider an example. Supposing you read a story in the newspaper and you're, a bit, you're doubtful, is this really true? So you ask a friend of yours, is this, uh, is this story true or false? Your friend may say, it's neither true nor false, it's somewhere in between. What do they mean? by saying it's somewhere in between, they mean it is not entirely true. It is not entirely false. It's it's a mixture of fact Mm -hmm. and fiction. It's got some elements of truth, some elements of falsehood. So it's somewhere in between. In that sense also, Bhagavan is using that term. Because ego, it is not the body, but it borrows the properties of body. It it limits itself to the extent of the body. Mm -hmm. And ego is not such it. But from Satchit, it borrows its existence and its awareness. So it's neither satchit nor the body, but it borrows the properties of both. So ego is what identifies. So when when we when we identify ourselves as a body, we who identify ourselves as I am this body, I am Bruce, or I am Michael or whoever, that is ego.
3: That identification as the body is a reflection
0: yes 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 that, did, that the, did, the error we,
3: of that reflection if we can say such a thing the error of that reflection the identification with that reflection is what spawns maya yes that
0: that, that
3: that it's because it's all linked to the five koshas uh, so so that that fa- that Preliminary error of the identification with the—I mean, the ego as body. If you want to, you know, that's the better. I guess.
0: Yeah. Then it
3: incorporates the cycle, and then it then it can only recognize reflections as real. Yeah. You see, it's like that core mistake of identifying a reflection as being real makes. All reflections real and that's the error as opposed to the core reality which is not a reflection but is self
0: shining yet yeah. that is ego is sometimes referred to as a reflection of awareness that is pure awareness is not aware of anything other than itself ego is right. an awareness that is aware of things other than itself but whatever ego is aware of, exactly. whatever other thing that ego is aware of, doesn't actually exist. So being aware of what doesn't actually exist is not real awareness. It's only a semblance of awareness. So exactly. there's a word in Sanskrit, chidabhasa. Abhasa <laughs> yes. means a, a, a semblance, a likeness. By extension, yeah. it also means a reflection, because if you look in your mirror, yeah. You, what you see in the mirror, the reflection is a like. It's not you're not seeing yourself in the mirror. You're seeing a likeness of yourself. So the, the original meaning, the basic meaning of abasa, is a likeness or a, a semblance. The secondary meaning is a reflection. So ego is called a reflection because it is not the original awareness. It is only a semblance of that original awareness. And it's only in the view of that reflection that all other things seem to exist. Right. So um, regarding Maya, you said ego is the, the root of Maya. Yes, that is true. Maya is said to consist of two powers, the Avarana Shakti and the Bhikshepa Shakti. Avarana is the uh is the veiling. So yeah. the As Ego contains both these powers within itself. That is the basic form of ego is I am this body. That is the veiling. Because what we actually are is just I am. But when we identify ourselves with the body, our real nature is the pure I am, is thereby obscured. So that is the avarana, the veiling. And as a result of that, we are aware of all this multiplicity that awareness of multiplicity is called vikshepa. Vikshepa means dissipation. So as soon as we experience ourselves as I am this body, we are consequently aware of all this multiplicity. So as Bhagavan said, maya is nothing but ego.
3: It's like a kaleidoscope.
0: Yeah, because the two defining characteristics of ego as ego we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body, and we are consequently always aware of things other than ourselves. That is the avarana and the big shaper. Both are right. included in ego. So without, that's why Bhagavan, <laughs> Bhagavan's analysis, that, that is what Bhagavan says, does not contradict anything that is said in the old text. But mm-hmm. he, he clarifies it because he, what is, in the old text they say, Avidya, they talk about Avidya, ignorance. But ignorance is nothing but ego. Ego is the false awareness, I am this body. That is what is meant by ignorance. We never cease to be aware I am, but we cease to be aware of ourselves as we actually are because we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. So ego is our Varana. Ego, sorry, ego is Avidya. Ego is Maya. Ego is everything. And By pointing out that ego is the root cause of everything, Bhagavan also makes Vedanta very practical because he then says, what is the nature of this ego? Ego rises, stands, and flourishes by attending to things other than itself. If instead of attending to other things, if it attends to itself, it will subside and disappear. This is something that hasn't been explained so clearly in any of the ancient texts. So Bhagavan has greatly simplified and clarified Vedanta. Uh, and most importantly of all, he has highlighted the practice. Because if we understand the nature of ego, we will also understand the nature of a practice. So long as we're attending to anything other than ourself, we're feeding and nourishing ego. In order to surrender this ego, we need to attend to ourself. So attending to ourself is... Is, is the path of jnana, the self-investigation. It is also the path of bhakti because it's the self-surrender. So Bhagavan has tied all of Vedanta together so simply by pointing out the nature of ego. And that ego itself is what is called avidya. Ego itself is what is called maya. Ego is the root of all problems. And the simple way to get rid of ego is simply to attend to it, to look at it
1: thank you Michael. thanks <laughs> um rajat Sanchati is asking um is there any particular reason why none of the verses of ulladana seem to talk about vasanas or is any verse implicitly dealing with the subject of vasanas and how to eradicate them
0: um <coughs> there's no particular reason but the Bhagwan had dealt with the, the subject of Vasana very thoroughly in Nana. Um, so perhaps he felt it wasn't necessary to elaborate more of it on it on But Vasanas are very clearly implied in Uludunapdu. For example, Take verse 25 of There, that is the verse where Bhagavan revealed the nature of ego. Ego is a formless phantom, it comes into existence grasping form, it stands grasping form, grasping and feeding on forms it flourishes abundantly, leaving form it grasps form. From that we have to understand the nature of ego is grasping, the the very nature of ego is to be constantly grasping form. Since ego is a is formless, it has no form of its own, whatever forms it grasps are things other than itself. So all those forms are what are called vishayas. So the ego has a very strong inclination to cling to vishayas, because clinging to vishayas is the means by which it comes into existence and survives and flourishes. So the 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 um the the Vishaya are very, very clearly implied there because what is the nature of ego to be constantly clinging to Vishaya? That inclination to cling to Vishaya is Vishaya So, if we understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly, we will see that though he hasn't directly talked about Vishaya um that is, but the reason for Vishaya is in a sense clarified by that um, verse 25. So we, we, we shouldn't take Bhagavan's teachings in isolation. If we want to understand, if we want to have a deep understanding of any aspect of Bhagavan's teachings, we have to see the connection but with other aspects. So what Bhagavan has talked to, discussed thoroughly in Nana about Vishaya it, in a sense, this verse 25 is explaining why ego, why ego has vishaya why it's the very nature of ego to have vishaya because it depends on holding on to the bishayas in order to... Sub, to, to it, ego seems to exist only when it's holding on to Bishayas Vishayas means objects or phenomena, <laughs> what he refers to in Dunapio's form. so we need to understand all these connections then his teachings will become more and more clear to us
1: thank you michael um there's a question from uh, sandy if world comes into existence after my ego comes into existence why is my ego creating this world full of pain and suffering
0: Um, that if the world doesn't come into existence after ego rises, as soon as ego rises, the world comes into existence. That is, as Bhagavan says in verse 7, which we talked about a couple of months ago, though the world and awareness, awareness there means awareness of the world, that's ego, though the, the awareness that knows the world is ego, so though the world and awareness rise and subside simultaneously, it is by the awareness alone that the world shines. That awareness, by which the world shines, is ego. Because it's only in the view of ego that the world seems to exist. So, your question is: Why does ego? Why does ego come into existence? Um, Bhagavan uh, says that's an invalid question. Before asking why or how ego comes into existence. First, find out what this ego is. Find out whether it's ever actually come into existence. Ego seems to have come into existence so long as we're looking at other things. But if we look at ourselves, no such thing as ego is to be found. Since there's no such thing as ego, it has never come into existence and therefore the question becomes redundant. So before asking whether why the son of a barren woman was born, how was the son of a barren woman born? First, find out whether there's any such thing as the son of a barren woman. Obviously, the son of a barren woman is a logical impossibility, because if a woman is barren, that means she's got no children. If she's got children, she's not barren. So, just like the ego is said to be as unreal as the son of a barren woman, It's though it seems to exist, if we investigate it, we find it has no existence whatsoever. But it's no use telling us, oh, ego doesn't exist. Nowadays, there are neo Advaitins who say, oh, we don't have to worry. There's no such thing as ego. Everything is awareness, no problem. (laughs) But we are still suffering. (laughs) So that's not really, that's obviously a, um, that's, um, that is very, that That is trivializing the problem, right? Is, we, so long as we seem to be ego, we have a big problem. So we have to deal with this problem. How do we deal with this problem? By investigating ego. Because only by investigating ego can we actually see what we actually are. When we see what we actually are, we will see but we were never ego.
1: Thank you, Michael. Um... So Shohan is asking a question: um, If person A can only see the wavelength of blue, then is it our real nature, this, then is it true that our real nature can see the wavelength of red, even that red is a true color? Or is it that our real nature can see all possible wavelengths and know them as shadows? um <laughs> yeah no then then uh I, then he clarified um a bit more saying so the implication is our real nature can see the falsities and know them as false
0: no So, by real nature <laughs> i think
1: he's referring to ego here
0: yeah our real nature does not know anything false right what is unreal appears only in the view of what is unreal all these f- all phenomena all the red wavelengths and blue wavelengths and all phenomena of all kinds, all numbers, everything, exists only in the view of the ego. They are all unreal because they exist in the view of the ego because the ego itself is unreal. In the view of pure awareness, there is nothing other than pure awareness because pure awareness is alone real. The real cannot know the unreal. Only the unreal can know the unreal.
1: Yeah. Uh, th- thank
0: Go you, on. Michael. <laughs> so whatever is known by ego is unreal, except one thing. I am. Michael. Uh, yes. So. Wait a
4: second. You're saying. So. Can it be. Is it the scenario? The, the scenario that. um Our real nature, right, has to, uh, I mean, know the unreal. I mean, to claim it as unreal, it has to,
0: it has to demarcate it from the real, right? Our real nature doesn't have to do anything. Our real nature just is as it is. Okay, so
4: can we say that our real nature can
0: know the unreal as unreal? No. The unreal appears only in the view of ego. All phenomena are unreal. Our real nature knows all this as real, not as all this phenomena. It knows it as pure awareness. What what we see as all this phenomena is what pure awareness sees as pure awareness. Well, then... Then ego uh,
4: seems to have an advantage. He knows, he knows, he has a touch of the real, and then
0: he also has a touch of the unreal. So we're, we're better off. I I know not only what is real, I also know what is unreal. So I'm better off than the, this poor, re, this poor real awareness but knows only what is real. <laughs> I, yes. I I don't think that's a very good bargain <laughs> because the, the unreal causes so much problem, and the unreal doesn't exist. We are knowing. What doesn't exist as if it exists. Are are you better off seeing the rope as a rope or seeing it as a snake? What you are seeing is only a rope. (coughs) But so long as you see it as a snake, you are not seeing it as it is. So though we know the reality, which is I am, we don't know the reality as it is because we know it as all this multiplicity. But what the I'm saying is, is, one. So long as we know it as multiplicity, we don't know it as it actually is. the The
4: knowledge that that uh, this is a rope, but it can appear as a snake, supersedes the knowledge that this is a rope,
0: right? Is, you're trying to view it from a mental point of view, from a perspective yeah. that that is. These are just analogies. The point of the analogy is what actually exists is only the rope. So long as oh. you see it as a snake, you are not seeing it as it is. But even when you're seeing it as a snake, what you are actually seeing is only a rope. So even when we see pure awareness, ourself, as all this, what we're actually seeing is only our, 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 is only pure awareness, but we don't see pure awareness as it is. We see it as all this. In order to... If you want to know pure awareness as it is, you need to see it as it is, namely as just pure awareness. So, mm. so long as we see multiplicity, as Bhagavan said, that is ignorance, because what actually exists is only our self, the pure awareness. This is verse thirteen. What, uh, what, um, <clears throat> one self who is awareness alone is real. Awareness of multiplicity is ignorance, Bhagavan says there. So what's that mean? What we actually are is pure awareness. That alone is what is real. When we seemingly know um, all this multiplicity, that is, we, what are we seeing as that multiplicity? Only the one thing that actually exists. But we are seeing the one as many. That is ignorance. Knowledge is to see the one as one. And what is that one? That one is ourself. So, so long as we see ourselves as all this, we are not seeing ourselves as we actually are. So, if we want to see ourselves as we actually are, we not need to stop looking at all this and look at ourselves alone. When we look at ourselves alone, we will see that we alone are what actually exist.
1: Good, thank you, Michael. Um, last question <coughs> from Ram.
0: Uh, um, why do we get anxious why do we get anxious because we see ourselves as many and some of the these many things that we see some of them seem to contribute to our happiness so we desire those things we're attached to those things some of them seem to um, detract from our happiness so we're anxious. But I shouldn't lose the things that make me happy. I shouldn't be have to confront the things that make me unhappy. So anxiety is inevitable so long as we raise as ego. So long as we see ourselves as many uh, desire, fear, anxiety. All these things are inevitable. We can't. Be, if you want to be free of of desire, of attachment, of fear, of anxiety, and all these things. You need to see yourself as you actually are, because what you actually are is one and immutable. It's the only one. There's nothing other than that. So there's nothing to be anxious about, nothing to fear, nothing to desire.
1: So self-attention is the best antidote for anxiety, panic attacks, and all those exactly. things.
0: Exactly. It's the best antidote for everything. It's the antidote for ego, which is the root cause of everything. For whom is anxiety? For whom is desire? For whom is fear? It's all only for ego. So if you cut the root by a, uh, a self-attention, by, by... ego seems to exist only when we don't look at it. If we look at it, there's no such thing as ego to be found at all.
1: So, uh, since 2010, you know, we started doing the satsangs here in Houston, so many of our uh, fellow devotees here have, have had their symptoms of anxiety improve with self-attention, they practice more and more, um, you know, so many of our fellow devotees here have, have benefited from it significantly. Okay.
0: But, and this but, is yeah yeah because that is the more we go deep in this practice the more we recognize that the one thing that is real is only our own being everything else is just a passing show so why should we be i mean and the more we we recognize the immutable nature of ourselves and the 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 unreal nature of everything else the less the less we will be impacted by desire or fear, or we we haven't completely given up desire and fear and anxiety and everything. But these things they're slowly, slowly fading into the background. They're losing their their strength. Right. But we shouldn't delude ourselves. Sometimes you may think, "Oh, now I've overcome anxiety. I'm no longer anxious." And suddenly something will happen to make us anxious. So we are not out of the woods until the ego is annihilated. So we shouldn't think that we have in any way conquered Maya. But as a general rule, the deeper we go in this path, the more all these concerns will drop off. We will be more and more willing to take up the luggage off our head and leave it on the train, surrender all our burden to Bhagavan. That will come automatically to the extent to which we go deep within.
1: So, as a follow-up, Sandy is asking, how about when you're too overwhelmed by anxiety that you're not able to do self-attention? I guess that's when you do one of the bhakti practice or
0: listen yeah, to yeah. Or but, Um Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, ideally, we should be attending to ourselves all the time. But in practice, we fail so many times. Even when we're not overwhelmed by anxiety, we're carried away by our bhasanas and so on and so forth. All we can do is to try to be self-attentive as much as possible. So it doesn't matter how many times we fail. So long as we keep on trying, that's all that matters. When we feel so overwhelmed, but though we'd like to cling to self-attentiveness, we feel unable to. Pray to Bhagavan. Or, or pick up Bhagavan's books and read what Bhagavan has said. That will calm down the mind and put everything back in perspective and make it easier for us to turn within again. Right.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much,
0: Michael. Right. And someone has written here, I had panic attacks until... Sorry, I've... Yeah.
1: I had do panic you, attacks do... until I insisted that I sit quietly, either meditating or in self-attentiveness, Three times a day for at least ten minutes. It was quite difficult, like facing an inner fire, but it ebbed quite quickly in a few days' times.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think this is this is we will all have experienced if we if we're following this path. But the concerns of the past slowly, slowly drop off. Though we still have concerns and um, and things that trouble us even now they somehow make less impact now. Hmm. Slowly, slowly, things are dropping off. But this is a process we're going through. We have to persevere in this practice because then only we, I mean, without the perseverance in the practice, we, 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 how can we experience the benefits of the practice until, unless we persevere in it? So let us just do our best, try to be self-attentive as much as we can be. That's all that we can do. And everything else will be taken care of by Bhagavan.
4: Thank you, Michael. I just got now what you said. Basically, infinity plus a little bit doesn't make any sense, right? It, yes. It's still infinity.
0: Yes. There's a, there's a mantra in one of you Panishads. This is Purna, that is Purna. If you, this is porna means this world is porna. That is uh, That Brahman is porna. If you take porna away from porna, you're left with porna. And if you add porna back into porna, you you add porna. Porna <laughs> means what is whole. So, yes, yeah, there's nothing but we can add to our real nature. Our real nature is infinite fullness. Om namo bhagavati chalaramanaya.